Welcome to Big Feels at Work, the show where mental health and addictions professionals talk about what it's like when they have big feelings of their own. I'm Graham Panther, with me is Gareth Edwards. Hello. Hello, hello. Gareth, I've been reading a book. Of course you have. <laughs> when are you not reading a book? <laughs> Apart from this moment. Excellent question. I have one under the table. Um, I read a book that I just read in about three days, because it was one of those books. It was a, a memoir that a friend lent me by Glennon Doyle called Love Warrior. And Ooh. it was one of those, yeah, one of those books, the cover didn't grab me, the title didn't grab me, but she just, my friend just said, now nah, you got to read this. Ooh. So I read it and read it very quickly because it, it just was like a fountain of uh, messy life wisdom distilled, uh, which is very much my jam. The reason I mention it here, so she said something in the book that really struck me in relation to this, this weird and wonderful work we do in mental health and addictions. So she's writing about a crisis in her life and in her family's life specifically. So that there's this possibility of divorce. She's got three kids. It's a whole thing. And she's noticing how many of her friends don't really want to hear about what she's going through. <laughs> yeah. And if they do want to hear about it, they want to fix it, right? So either they want to tell her what to do or they want to tell her it's all going to be okay and here's why. Mm. Everything happens for a reason or this will happen or whatever it is. And she's, she's watching this and she's getting more and more frustrated by this. And she's realizing that, that they can't sit with the raw, unprocessed feeling of it. Yeah, I have a question. What key going? Right. So there's this moment she describes in the book where her daughter is crying and the writer notices herself doing exactly the same thing to her daughter that her friends are doing to her. So she puts on a big fake smile and she says, it's okay. We're fine, baby. We're fine. And here's how she describes that when she's sort of journaling about it afterwards. She says, we think our job as humans is to avoid pain. Our job as parents is to protect our children from pain and our job as friends is to fix each other's pain. Maybe that's why we all feel like failures so often, because we all have the wrong job description for love. Oh, I like it. <laughs> all the wrong job description for love. <laughs> wow. She goes on to say, pain, I love this one, pain, like love, is simply something to surrender to. It's a holy space we can enter with people only if we promise not to tidy up. <laughs> yes, lots of rich imagery in that one. Yeah. So this idea of tidying up, this idea of I'll, I can be with you and your pain, but only on the condition that I'll feel useful or I'll feel like I've made it better. It's such a trap. It's such a uh, recipe for, for not sitting in the pain together, for not connecting. And we know this, all of us know this from whenever we've had big shitty stuff happen. We know, you know, sometimes what we want is, is help and fixing, but sometimes what we want is just someone to be there with us in that pain. So my question is, do we in the mental health and addiction center, sector, do we have the wrong job descriptions in our work? When someone comes to us in great pain, their life in a tangle, do we think it's our job to make it all okay? And what does that feel like when we know we can't? Mm. I mean, I guess your second question answers your first. Hmm. 
clearly, yeah, clearly we do have the wrong job description because we can't make it all okay. That's kind of a a core principle of the the change that we want to see is that you know people are empowered to make themselves okay or not. Like mm. I think as part of this, we need to be okay with people being happy to be not okay. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a different tangent. Mm. The question I had back in the quote mm. was when, when the, the writer was talking about, you know, sitting with the raw pain. My question was, who's raw pain? Because I wonder if that urge to fix is an urge to soothe your own discomfort. Absolutely. This is something, something you and I have talked about. You've got this beautiful phrase that I always misremember. Mm. Something like, here, let me hold your hand through my pain. Yeah. Am I close? Here, let me hold your hand through my breakdown. Um, That's the one. We, we were talking about that a while ago, and I can't remember which of us was having a breakdown. But the, the, the concept was there's this thing you notice with certain friends and professionals where they're just not comfortable with what's happening, with what you're describing maybe it's some aspect of what you're describing there's just something in it that pushes a button for them or often it's just they feel a bit helpless yeah and you can notice when they're feeling itchy in that helplessness Mm. and you notice when you then the one in pain shift to helper mode yourself because you don't want to freak them out or you don't want it to be awkward or whatever it is Mm. yeah and I've, I've, I've had that with professionals as well as with friends. And that's particularly galling because you walk away going, I just paid to comfort that GP so they wouldn't feel too freaked out by what I was telling them. <sighs> yeah, and it's a funny one, eh? Because if, if that was a lived experience peer support worker and they freaked out, we'd probably be more forgiving. Yeah, <laughs> tell me more. But, well, I don't know. I think, I think this bulletproof got all the answers, know what they're doing, can cope with any situation that we feel pressured to be because we're in that system that promotes that. Doesn't serve those who either haven't got, you know, a profound lived or living experience or don't talk about it or don't share it. You know, like yeah, particularly GPs, because they're general, right? They don't mm. see this they, they they don't know what's coming through the door, you know? So Yeah. Yeah, like I think we need to find a way to to allow everybody to feel that this urge to fix is a wonky path. Yeah, it's wrong for everybody's job description. Hundred percent. But you're but yes, but you're naming something really important there, right from the start, which is that it is in the job description. <laughs> so there's a tension there right from the off the bat, which is there's only so much you can do, and yet you're expected to do it. So with the GP, it's you're expected to make sure the person's okay when they leave the room. If it's the the nurse or the um, the social worker, there's there's you know there's expectations across the board. Today's episode title is "When Helping Doesn't Feel Good," and it's it's deliberately a double meaning, which is we sort of touched a little bit already on why it doesn't feel so good to be the one being helped. But as you're pointing to, it, it doesn't feel so good to be the one helping either when you when you actually don't think you can so that's kind of the general container and i want to play around with a few ideas with that the first of which is i just want to start with the 
other side of that coin, which is the benefits of being helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. often as professionals or even as friends of people going through a hard time, we can help. And that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So starting there, there's this really great Netflix special called Stutz. Have you, have you seen? No. So Tell me more. It's a weird little documentary by Jonah Hill. So Jonah Hill's an actor. He's been in a bunch of comedies. He has been in therapy for the past few years, and he decided to make a documentary about his therapist, who's a guy named Stutz. I forget his first name. But the, so the documentary is called Stutz. It's black and white. It's on Netflix. It's, it's awesome. It's very unexpected. I thought it was going to be super self-indulgent. I thought it was going to be, oh, a Hollywood guy interviews his own therapist. But it's actually, it's quite vulnerable and um, quite profound, I found it. And anyway, so there's this beautiful line Jonah Hill says early in the documentary. He says, in traditional therapy, you're paying this person and you save all your problems for them. And they just listen. And your friends who are idiots give you advice. <laughs> unsolicited. <laughs> Yeah. And you want your friends just to listen and you want your therapist to give you advice. <laughs> so they have this really great chat about uh, the tradition of, of therapy in which you wouldn't help, in which you wouldn't offer advice. And so Stutz is talking about how that's what he trained in, but that he felt early on in his career, he wanted to offer people something right away that would, mm. that would help them feel better. So the quote is, he says, I wanted them to feel change, some forward motion. Mm. And that is the best case scenario, right, of, of, of the be helpful approach, that the best case scenario is that we are offering people tools. We're offering people new frames of understanding. We're offering practical support often and in the sorts of roles across the sector. Often it's just like a ride to Centrelink, you know, like it's, it's often practical stuff. Mm. And the hope is that in doing so, we're giving you, the, you, the person in crisis, more options to move forward, right? Yeah. Curiously, one of the things that really bugs me, and I'd love to find a way out of it, is collectively we call them tools, which implies fix. Yeah. And I just think there's just something there, like language is so important. I mean, tools can also build, so I get that. Mm. But the implication is here's, here's a hammer to fix your nail problem, you know? Yep. But anyway... That's actually a really nice segue because in the show, in Stutz, he calls them tools as well. And they, they have, you know, clearly that's, they're quite meaningful for, for, for Jonah Hill. He's talking about, you know, the tools that he's been given. And then they show these beautiful little um, note cards that Stutz writes. So he's a bit of a cartoonist as well as a therapist. Mm -hmm. And so he'll draw these ideas and they go through them in the documentary and then, you know, the be not super unfamiliar to, to most of our listeners. There's sort of, you know, some standard therapeutic tools, but drawn in this quirky way or given these quirky names. And Jonah Hill describes how when he pulls a card out, when he's having a hard time at home, he feels closer to his therapist. And what I what really struck me about that, I think is absolutely key to what we're just discussing here, which is that it's never just the tool. It's the relationship. So it, if he'd gotten that tool from some chatbot or some therapist he didn't feel close enough to want to make a movie with, I wonder if the tool might not have had the same effect or at least the same, you know, he, he lights up when he's talking. Exactly. Exactly. So, so a hammer's a hammer is a hammer. Yep. But I don't think that applies to the sort of wisdom and, and 
sharing that we do in this space? Yes. So the way they describe it in the doco is you, you pull one of these note cards out when you're having a hard time and you feel close to someone who just wants the best for you, mm. which is a beautiful notion. And there's another line later in the documentary that I think is a big clue here, which is you can't move forward without being vulnerable. And I think for me, that holds the key for why the just be helpful approach can't be all there is. Because it's really hard to be vulnerable with someone who you think is the one with all the answers and you're the one with all the problems. So this brings us to our our second kind of little topic, mini topic here. So that's, we've talked about the the benefits of trying to help and the benefits of helping and all power to that because there's, there's so much rich stuff down the path of helping. I don't want to yeah. don't want to understate that for a second. But the other side of it is it, it it can't be at the expense of that relationship. So I want to talk about the importance of having one person in your life who's not trying to fix you. Yeah, at least one. Yeah, at least one. So and sometimes that's all you got. If you're really in the shit and your whole family and your partner and your friends are all kind of, it's all about what do we do about so-and-so. Yeah. So we have this kind of caricature, right, of like the clinician who's only interested in whether or not you've taken your meds or the support worker who's just hounding you to set a goal or keeps asking why you haven't taken any steps towards your goal that you never really wanted to set in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) That's like a caricature, right? I'm not saying that's typical, but there's certainly... There is a tendency uh, in our sector to have this hyper-focus on progress or fixing or what are we going to do with you? Mm. Those are extreme examples, but I think we can all veer toward that territory. I think there is a gravitational pull towards this fixing approach in our sector. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, and I want to give a nod to um, this is broader than that, Mm. you know, like, so let's take it away from mental health and addictions. You know, if you show up to a healthcare provider or any public sector provider, you expect some sort of transaction. Yeah. And that's on both sides. So the pressure on the patient, the pressure on the, the provider mm-hmm. to do something. Yeah. You know, and that's that's a universal that this all sits in. Hundred hundred percent. I mean, I think about when I first went to my GP with really distressing uh, intrusive thoughts. I definitely wanted her to fix them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's a bigger piece here about how these sorts of things get framed, but um, yeah, it's probably wider than <laughs> wider than we've got today. So about with you. Well, the point that I want to sort of, so first of all, yes, 100%, the, the gravitational pull is more than the system itself. It's the whole, the whole idea really that I, the individual am in pain someone help Mm. but here's the the kind of unintended consequence of that which is if everyone in your life is trying to fix you you can start to feel like you are the problem absolutely and we talked about this in episode 12 the cost of asking for help once you start thinking of yourself as a problem that can leave you really stuck and if you've been on this treadmill for a few years, and we know that that's the typical journey, right? You, for most people, it's not. Go to the GP, get a referral, feel better. For most people, it is a long, slow, sweaty, tedious process. Ooh. 
Sometimes the help helps and often it doesn't. And so if you're on that treadmill and everyone's trying to help you and the help isn't helping, that can be a really lonely place to be. Absolutely. And I hear a lot from all the people I've talked to about that journey, whether it's through Big Fields Club, the peer support initiative I run, or just through my evaluation work in the sector, just talking to people about their their journey. What I hear so often is the importance of having one person in their life who's not trying to fix them. One person who they have a relationship where they're not just the fuck up. So often that's a peer worker, but often it's not. Often it's just... um, a clinician or a nurse or, or a, an intake worker or just someone who listened, someone who sat with their pain and didn't, didn't try. I, and fix I, it. I, I think there's the key. It's this, there's, there's some real hard tangibles in there. And so some of it is that real art of listening that, yeah, like authentic listening. Yeah. And I feel like we've sort of lost a little bit of track. The other thing, and again, it's a passing, it's a fleeting reference One thing that we've lost, I feel, from sort of day-to-day business is this whole strengths-based approach. Yeah. Say more about that. Yeah. So we've become really fixated on symptoms and symptom management and functionality and, you know, sort of patching people up to get back into the game. Mm. And that's fine. Like like we say, sometimes that works and sometimes that's what you need. But there's also this, like, Charles Rapp, not with a W, His approach to strengths base, where you basically you focus on the things you are able to do, can do, do well, and essentially build them up so they eclipse all the things that are troubling and challenging. So you don't really attend to those things as as much. You attend to becoming really great at what you're good at. Yeah, I love that. Charles Rep was the um, was a big part of my initial mental health training back when I worked at uh, a peer run agency in in Auckland. In my early 20s, mid-breakdown of my Mm. own, got a job as a peer worker, and we did this training that was very much sort of cobbled together because we were kind of making it up as we went. And it was philosophical, and there was a whole lot of training in ethics, but the backbone of it was Charles Rapp and the strengths model. And this idea, exactly as you say, that, that we start by finding what a person's strengths are, what what we have to work with what 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 are their existing tools if you like so one of the nice things i think about the ambiguity in a lot of job descriptions particularly care providing job descriptions like peer support work and such hmm. is that because they're ambiguous and, and loose and not procedural we haven't proceduralized it thus far mm-hmm. there is op- opportunities there to apply essentially these kind of these kind of ways of thinking, let alone like the, the sort of indigenous spiritual models that can also counterbalance that fixation on symptoms and look for meaning and, and substance in the experience. Yeah, there's ways to apply that, even if it's just in narrative and discussion. I totally agree. And that's an interesting point that there are these roles that kind of bubble up and peer worker is one of them, but there are other examples where the rules aren't so set yet. And so you do get to do more of that listening. You do get to kind of feel it out as you go. And one example I was going to give was um, from Partners in Recovery, which was a a care coordination, nationwide care coordination program Mm -hmm. from a few years back. It was an interesting example of that because 
they had a bunch of funding and a bunch of ideas about what a what a really useful care coordinator could do in someone's life. But there was a real commitment to let's figure out what that role even looks like as we go. Yeah. I evaluated a bunch of them and in certain pockets, they were just doing the same old, all right, let's set your goals and, you know, not, nothing new. But in other pockets, there were examples where, I'll say it from the client's perspective, they talked about how revolutionary it was to have someone come to their home and just listen, mm. not start with an assessment. So I'd, I'd push back there. It isn't just listening. Yeah. It's a very particular intentional brand of listening. And again, it's something that I feel like is very, I know it's very teachable. I had you know, several years running Lifeline here in New Zealand and we taught hundreds, if not thousands of people, essentially how to listen mm. intentionally. And I think I think it's a core skill that every role should have. So what are you teaching there? Uh, it's a combination of things. So some of it's uh, a sort of hyper-awareness about the person in front of you. Mm. So, you know, you're not glaring at people and staring them down, but you are trying to attend to body language, tone. You are trying to pick up on nuance in the... In the so you're not just looking for information. Mm. Typically in that healthcare world, you're either doing assessments or you're tracking progress or you're looking for reported symptoms or whatever else. So you're, you're going into that conversation with a whole essentially audit tool in the back of your head of like, where do I get my data to fill in the things I need to know? Yeah. That isn't listening, that's information mm. gathering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Listening is allowing the person to express and give encouragement to that expression and really paying attention to what's being said, how it's being said, and what gets repeatedly said. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's a, a very slim version of it, but yep. essentially it's that, it's that kind of approach of shifting from what do I need to get out of this person to what is this person talking about? Not even what are they telling me. Hmm. You know, like, you know, like, think of your friends, like some of them have got a loop. You know, when they when they get into a topic about themselves or whatever, when when they start looping, it's like, oh, there's a one of a better word, a little construct inside of them that they can't escape. It's just mm. it's just a locked in view of themselves in the world. Yeah. And you know, it's a choice to keep reiterating that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, honoring that that can take a while, right? That's not Absolutely. A quick, that's not a quick process. And for many of the listeners to the show that's just not possible in terms of their, you know, a GP list getting 15 minutes with a person or, you know, whatever other constraints are in place. Again, I'd push back. I think, I think, I think those first couple of minutes, if, if you could show somebody, if you can demonstrate that you're listening by mm. paraphrasing, checking in, what mm. you're telling me is this, mm. like that's 60 seconds, two minutes or whatever, you can really show that you've heard them. So it doesn't have to be a profound, long, Rogerian, reflective yeah. listening exercise. Because <laughs> interestingly, like lots of people do this. When I got taught this originally, like we think we're all smart and we've got it. Like salespeople do this. They mm-hmm. teach salespeople how to do this because salespeople have to build rapport incredibly quickly. <laughs> Politicians do this. You know, like it's, it's, it's not a benign skill, <laughs> <laughs> but it can be used for benign purposes. And I think... I think anybody, there's an opportunity, like go read some stuff or get involved in a professional development course or whatever. Go find how to listen 
And I think it, it'll just transform the conversations you have. Mm, I like that. The reason that I feel like this, this authentic or intentional listening is such a key to this topic is because A, it stops you rushing to fixing people, stops you rushing to here's all the tools I've got, here's all the ways I can help. Mm. But it also makes you really understand what it is they want the help with. And sometimes, like you've said yourself, sometimes it's just being heard. Hmm. Like the first question, if you've got the time, that anybody should be asking is like, what have you already tried? And is it worth giving any of that a go again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I remember a GP even just saying back to me, well, you've tried all the things we'd usually suggest. Mm. So I'm not going to suggest those again. And that was quite a powerful moment because I'd never had a GP say that. Yeah. Um, the example I want to give, so, so the PIR one, the Partners in Recovery example, where the role, the care coordination role wasn't, wasn't pinned down yet. They got to kind of experiment. The places where I found that it worked really well and had these quite um, profound impacts was where, as I say, they didn't start with the assessment. They often would meet two or three times before actually getting into any of the, well, what are your goals? What are, what are, the, what are you struggling with? What do you want to, what do you, where do you want to go to? They'd hold off on that and first just chat. And a funny thing happened. So you had all these people who were, you know, they're the people, the client base for the service were the people who've been really on the journey for 20 years. And they've probably got five or six professionals in their life right now. So really feeling pretty stuck often. And they'd long since given up most of them having an answer to the question, what are your goals? Yeah. <laughs> and no one could understand that, right? And so we, we sort of dug deep underneath it and talked to a bunch of the clients. And what came out was, one person put it so beautifully, it's hard to, it's hard to plan for your future when you don't think you have one. Mm. So what the partners and recovery workers were able to do simply by spending time with them was give them enough attention that after two or three hours two or three sessions, this person started to think, maybe I'm worthy of attention. <laughs> maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm worth listening to. And so the, the answer to that question, what do you want, started to shift from, I don't know, another pack of cigarettes to bigger things, longer term things. And then from there, there was enough of a relationship of trust that they could, they could be vulnerable with what they really wanted. They could be vulnerable with themselves about what I could want if I'm willing to risk wanting something. So there's something there. And, and again, I don't want to come across as if this is easy. Like I catch myself doing this all the time with my girlfriend, like wanting to jump to, well, have you tried this? And she's the same with me. And, uh, you know, it, it's uncomfortable. It is, and I, th I, think it's, I think it's dancing that dance. So one of the models I developed when I was at Lifeline, because we have so many different sort of modalities and therapeutic approaches, and I had to do this kind of synthesized approach. Hmm. Essentially, it was like a three-bubble Venn diagram, and right at the top was listening, just always active listening, it was called at that time, just constantly paying attention to, am I really listening to this person? Yeah. And then the other two that you kind of, dance between is that directive i have an option i have an idea you know i have something you tried before or something that's new can we explore an actual thing next to i'm here for you i'm along i'm along with you for the journey 
you're you're figuring this out. My job is to to walk alongside you while you do that, mm. and and that kind of legitimised both. And if you're constantly listening, then you know whether it's time to jump in and go, "Hey, I've got the thing just for you," or mm. whether it's time to go. That sounds incredibly tough or I- interesting. Like, mm. Let's get away from everything being hard. Mm. Like one of the things I've done in my own practice is like that sounds fascinating. Tell me more about how how that looks. You know, like yeah. it doesn't always have to be sort of tough or traumatizing or sad. It can be interesting and weird and uh, curious. You know, so finding yeah. that way to sort of neutralize the this is all pain and a problem. Well, that. That sort of brings us to where I wanted to wrap this up, which is, again, we, we can get really stuck in our roles in this sector. I'm the helper, you're the fuck up. Mm. And those of us listening to this show know it ain't that simple because most of us <laughs> have often been the fuck up. So to notice how the dynamics of a helping scenario can draw us back into that role Mm. to notice how we might challenge that to get curious and so when you describe reflecting back hey that's really fascinating tell me more about that that's an opportunity for someone to be more than the fuck up yeah and there's lots of opportunities for that right whether it's a short chat or a whole kind of uh, support relationship i was thinking about this in terms of like how 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 might i try and remind myself to hold my role lightly when i'm in that kind of helper role mm. and one of the things i thought about was okay one one thing that's available to me often is to share my own struggles on something they're talking about because i'm pretty pretty well versed at talking about my stuff now and i'm sort of pretty open about it that's not available to everyone necessarily in every discipline Mm. or in every scenario but i was thinking it could be useful sometimes to just reflect on even if you're not going to share it reflect on times you found that same thing struck a challenge or you found found yourself stuck in the same way and i've been sort of doing this with friends lately because you know a friend will come with a problem that I feel I've solved in my life. And the first instinct is to go, aha, I have the answer for you, buddy. <laughs> and I've been noticing lately, noticing that impulse and then wondering if there's a little pause there to before I get to that, because that's there when they want it. But before, exactly. Yeah, before I get to that, to go more to the place of what did it feel like again when I didn't have the answer to that? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really valuable a valuable way of looking at it and maybe yeah going into these encounters with like just a check-in just as mm. you're walking down to the appointment or whatever just like there was a time when i felt like the fuck up you just wanted the answer and i didn't know you know i was doing some reflection today like i remember distinctly very early on in my journey so i'm thinking of writing again i remember like picking an argument with ron coleman and um I think it's Patrick Rufus. I think his first name is Patrick. Because they were talking about recovery at a time when nobody was. And I mistook recovery for cure. And I was like, there is no cure for this. And I got quite shitty with them. Mm. You know, like, and now, thanks to people like Ron Coleman and uh, I hope it's Patrick Rufus mm. and, and many, many others, like, I've, I've managed to find other ways of thinking and being. And it, like, there is a time when we didn't know. 
And it's really helpful to remember or felt hopeless that we've done everything like you were at the GPs. I've tried it all. It doesn't work, <laughs> you know, and just remembering that's what we're walking into, not a repository of data that we need for a process. I, gu- I guess a bit, and it's way beyond this episode for sure, but maybe we'll get there. There's the role then of pushing back on the system that says, can you go do this form? Where's the goal progress? Where's the tracker? Blah, blah, blah. Like, how do we, how do we come together to sort of keep living our values in the workplace and saying, this isn't the most important thing today. So we didn't do it. Yeah. That's, that's a much harder and bigger ask, but, and a different, you know, different take on this. Yeah. And on that, just to finish, that was, again, that was my experience early on working at that peer run agency because we had all the goal plans and the, and, and such, but it was, it was never required. And even the great ones, even like a rap tool. Yep. If the person's not in a place to do a rap tool, don't do the rap tool. Like, yep. sit with the story. I think one thing I wanted to say, yeah, one thing I wanted to add is this idea, and I've, I've got this from my journeys in um, relationships, you know, partnerships, is the power of asking. I think from memory, there's four. It's like, what do you want? Do you want me to listen? Do you want me to, do you want to talk? Do you want space? Do you want advice? Do you want comfort? Hmm. You know, and asking our partners, and obviously there'll be boundaries that we can't cross in professional roles, but just checking in and saying, right now, what, what do you want? Yeah. Of, of the kind of approaches we can offer you today. That gives me goosebumps. The idea as a client of being able to say, I want space today, actually. <laughs> Holy shit. Can you imagine? I mean, you know, like listeners wouldn't have heard, but, you know, Graham and I did this little beautiful check-in that some of you may have seen him do in other realms in the Big Fields Club of focusing. And it's, it's the least esoteric thing I've ever done. It's so practical and useful to just take a moment to sit, take a couple of breaths and, and become present. Mm. I don't think that's against anybody's rules. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. So, yeah, when Gareth and I start these recordings, we do a little what I call a kidney sit, which is something I got from my focusing teacher, Joe Kennedy. Um, comes from the focusing tradition. And, you, yeah, you, we've done it in a previous episode, episode 16, where you, you put your hands on your kidneys, so on your lower back, or on your heart, if that's more comfortable, and you just sit. And there's something about doing it with another person at the beginning of a conversation. I'm trying to figure out how to bring these into our work meetings, by the way. So maybe you can (laughs) smuggle that in. But yeah, sitting, starting there with a, with a, with a person you've just visited or it's just come into your office. There's something there too, potentially for those, you know, for, for, for whom that feels like it might be appropriate. All right. We'll wrap that up there. Thank you, Gareth. Awesome. I do have one little announcement, which is, uh, and Gareth's hearing this for the first time too. I've decided that we have to do a live episode. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're live now, but I get you. You get me. We're the audience. So we're going to do one uh, not too far from now where we'll have, uh, I think it'll be on Zoom. We'll have, uh, yeah, just a live audience about some of our listeners, whoever can make it along at whatever time we choose to do it. We'll be recording a podcast, but you'll be there and there'll be an opportunity to ask some questions or share some comments. Now I've got goosebumps. Oh, there you go. Because it feels like 
you know, with all this stuff we talk about, I always keep coming back to, we're all in this together. Fuck, it's a bit hard, isn't it? I'm always mindful of sounding like I'm, you know, I've got opinions, but I certainly don't want to sound like I've got all the answers in, in, in theme with today's topic. So I love that idea of coming, coming together and, and kind of sharing a bit of that journey live. Yeah, and like, you know, anybody who's listening to this podcast could easily be on this podcast. 100%, yeah. You know, even if you've just started, even if this is like day two, yeah, you have something of value to offer the conversation that we're having about how we do this, as you call it, this weird and wonderful work. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. So if you're keen on, on popping along to a live recording, live on Zoom, that is, uh, make sure you're signed up to the email updates for Big Feels at Work specifically. So if you're not sure you're signed up, go to bigfeelsatwork.com and chuck your email address in the sign-up box and you'll be the first to know when we're doing our live podcast. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Gareth. Oh. Hey, folks. Graham here with a little postscript. Exciting news. That live episode I just mentioned, it is now happening uh, by popular demand. So next week, Thursday, March 16th, at 6 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time, that is Melbourne time. If you're on the Big Feels at Work mailing list, you'll be able to find a sign-up link in the mail-out that you got with this very episode. Uh, if you're listening on your podcast player, there should be a link in the show notes. So follow that link and you can sign up and join us Thursday, March 16th for a little live episode, Zoom get-together. We'll figure out what it is when we do it. Yeah, looking forward to it. Okay.